to take a copy of God's Word this morning and turn open to the book of 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 7, if you're using a pew Bible, grab a pew Bible right in front of you, it's on page 991. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, page 991. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. God speaks to you this morning. He speaks to you this morning. Let's pray that He would speak directly to you as you have need this morning. Let's pray. For God, we are thankful that You are a God who speaks, and that You have spoken to us in Your Word. We're thankful that You are a God who knows us, a God who knitted us together, each of us, in our mother's womb, a God who gave each of us the breath of life, a God who knows our hearts better than we do, and so a God who knows what each of us need this morning in this place. We pray that in the way that only you can as our Maker as our sustainer, that you would speak to each of us as we have need, that we would know that we not just heard our God speak generally, but speak specifically to me as we leave this place. We pray this in the strong name of Christ Jesus, the living Word. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I was thinking this week... So I was preparing 
from this text that there are a lot of things that are beautiful about the Christian faith, a lot of things that really can't be rivaled in any other way that the Christian faith truly shines out in this dark world like nothing in the world can shine forth. One of the greatest beauties of our faith is that it offers perfectly what the world often tries to offer but can only do so imperfectly. Think of a number of things along those lines. We could spend the morning talking about it, but the Christian faith offers perfectly love. It offers perfectly unity. It offers perfectly truth. It offers perfectly justice. And the world will seek to offer things like that, but it always does so imperfectly. It never quite turns out to be the whole thing. One of those things, at least in Western culture, that has been sought over the last hundred years, 7,500 years, that has especially been heightened, and seems like to me the last 20 years, 15, 20 years, has been this idea of inclusiveness. Inclusive. The world offers, especially in Western culture, this idea of inclusivity, but it does so imperfectly. Whereas our God and the Gospel offers it fully and completely in every sense of the word. Paul uses the word all multiple times in this passage. There are three that kind of provide the outline for this passage as he uses the word all. And I want to work our way through that as we go through it this morning. He does so in verse 1. Prayers are to be made for all people. Verse 4, God desires all people to be saved. In verse 6, Jesus gave Himself as a ransom for all. So I want to think through these alls this morning. Allow that to guide us through this passage. And I think we will see very clearly that our God and His Gospel is truly inclusive. Truly inclusive. Unlike anything else. First, our first point this morning, we are to pray for all. We're to pray for all. Why? Because second, God has a desire for all. That's our second point. And then third point, Christ gave Himself for all. So we pray for all. Why? Because God's desire is for all. That's our second point. And third point, Christ gave Himself for all. So first, we pray for all. We are to pray for all. Paul seems to emphasize all throughout this text because of the exclusive nature of the false teaching that he wants Timothy to combat there in Ephesus. These teachers are teaching a kind of exclusivity in that they are marring the Gospel and they are caught up with all of these genealogies and all of these speculations and all of this focus upon the Jewish law. And so by doing so, they're creating a kind of in-group and then there is an out-group. There is an in-teaching and there is an out-teaching. And so Paul is picking up this idea of, well, this is not what is true of the Gospel. The Gospel is something that is for all, that is true for all, that 
encompasses all. You'll notice that almost without fail that aberrant teachings in the church are always exclusive. Those that hold to those teachings seem to have a knowledge that other people don't. And it always seems to benefit them in some way that it doesn't benefit those that don't have that knowledge. The gospel, on the other hand, is inclusive. Paul's just finished charging Timothy to fight for the faith, and now he tells him to first fight for it by praying for all. This is how you fight, Timothy. You pray for all. As we come here to chapter 2, Paul is ordering the church. He's giving directions on how the church is to be ordered. And the very first thing that he says is to order the church is that the church is to spend itself when it gathers together praying for all. J.C. Ryle once said, prayer is the most important subject in practical religion. All other subjects are second to it. And that is Paul's mindset here. When God's people come together, the first and principal thing that they do when they come together is that they pray. I once heard a story about an African bishop that was brought to the United States and he was taken on a tour of U.S. churches and he spent weeks here and his host was taking him to the airport on his, after his whirlwind tour over the weeks of visiting different American churches and his host wanted to know what he thought of the American church. He was looking for positive feedback and so he asked this African bishop, so what did you think of the American church? And the African bishop just said in one quick sentence, I think you don't pray much. He was shocked by the lack of prayer in the American church. Not too long ago, I was on vacation and I visited a church. My family went with me and uh, we were in the worship service and the pastor got up halfway through the service after some songs and, and he spent 10 or 15 minutes in the service giving the vision for the church. And he had three points, like a good preacher. And his first point was this is that we are a church that is committed to prayer. And everything we do is to be based upon prayer. We walked out of that service, and there was only one prayer in the entire service. And it was all of ten seconds long. And it went something like this. Jesus, we love You. Thanks for gathering us today. We want to give you praise. Shocked by the lack of prayerfulness in the church. When we gather as a church, we are to gather together in prayer. Paul is saying this is one of the ways that you fight the good fight of the faith. Is that you're a praying people. 
He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. He, he's giving all kinds of different terms for different types of prayer. And some have tried to make hay out of this in the history of the church. And they'll say, well, see, we're supposed to have this kind of prayer and this kind of prayer and this kind of prayer in the service. That's not Paul's point here. He's not giving us a detailed list of these are all the kinds of prayers you're to have when you gather together. Rather, what he is doing is he's saying, you are to be praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. That's his emphasis. That is, dear Ephesus Christians, stop being so parochial. Look outside of yourselves. You are to be praying evangelistic prayers for those that are outside the church. All kinds of prayers for them. Pray for them. Pray for all of them. I think we often view prayer as like it is the precursor to the great work. We pray before I open the Bible and I preach it, and we think, ah, oh, that's preparation for the Word. It's not the great precursor to the great work. It is the great work. God works through the prayers of His people. We're to be a praying people. I truly think if you and I knew what we accomplished on our knees, we would never get off our knees. He works through the prayers of His people. I tell the same illustration I did a few years ago because I liked what came of it once you heard the illustration, so I'm hoping for the same thing. Uh, Back in the 19th century when Charles Spurgeon was at Metropolitan Tabernacle Church, it was a July day and there were five college students that visited London because they wanted to go hear the great Charles Spurgeon preach. So they showed up before the services began and the doors were still closed and an old man met them outside and he said to these five young men, do you want to see the furnace of the church? Now, it's a hot day in July. They weren't exactly excited about that, but they didn't want to be rude. So they followed him into the church. And he took them down into the basement and he opened the door. And as he opened the door, these five young men, their jaws hit the floor because there were two to three hundred men and women on their knees praying for the services that were about to begin in that church. And the man introduced himself to them. Of course, it was Charles Spurgeon. And he said, this is the furnace of this church. This is the furnace of my preaching. This is the prayers of God's people. A couple of you picked up that ball uh, a couple of years ago. Beals in particular, and Linda and Tom Caldwell, and started gathering some people during each service to pray while the service was going on, and then they would attend the other service. That's fallen on hard times here during COVID. There's only about three or four that do that now. Oh, that'd be a good ministry to get involved in, to be the furnace of this church. To be praying that the Lord would work in these services, that we would see people come to saving faith in these services.
praying for all people. Paul says, first of all, not second, not after you've done something else, first of all, I urge you, I exhort you, I invoke. Here's a call to the great work of prayer before all else. Prayer is not the last of our work, but the first. Not the least of our work, but the greatest. John MacArthur said it well when he said this, that Paul begins his teachings on church order with this topic because it sheds light on the primary focus of the church. I would change that. I wouldn't say it's a primary focus. It's a primary mission of the church. He says, if the primary aim, again, I would say mission, if the primary mission of the church were fellowship or knowledge of the Word or the holiness of the saints, all those goals could perfectly be accomplished by taking us to heaven. The central function of the church on earth is to reach the lost. Paul knew the Ephesians would never do that as long as they maintained their selfish exclusivism. To carry out their mission in the world, they must be made to understand the breadth of the gospel call. This is of first importance. Be a praying people. Pray evangelistic prayers for all. Look outside of yourselves. Paul then mentions a particular subset of peoples. He says kings and all those in high positions. Why? Well, he tells us that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. The Christian desires to please God. And how is God pleased? You and I living a peaceful and a quiet life. That's what Paul says. Let the world be violent and loud. Let the Christian be peaceful and quiet. Godly, he says. Dignified, he says. You see, what appears to have been the case is that the false teachers in Ephesus were disrupting the church's quiet, and they were disrupting the church's peace by stirring things up with the governing authorities. Now, the Scriptures are clear. Christians will often be persecuted by governing authorities. Will often be persecuted. Paul will write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He isn't denying in this text that you and I might be persecuted. He's not denying even that the government might persecute the Christian church. But Paul's concern in this text here is something different. His concern is that the church and Christians not bring persecution upon themselves by unnecessarily disrupting things and bringing the gospel and the church into a bad light. That's his concern here. We're not to be disruptors. We're not to be fomenters of trouble in society. We aren't to be persecuted for being loud and obnoxious. If we are to be persecuted, it's because of our holiness because of our godliness, because of our seeking Christ in righteousness. We're to pray for our leaders. That is half. The other half is that we are to live godly, quiet lives. Now, Jason, how do you get to that? That that's his emphasis here. Well, it's echoed throughout this book. Listen. Chapter 3, verse 7, he says of the man ordainable as an elder, he must be well thought of by outsiders. 
Chapter 5, verse 14, he says of widows, I would have a younger widow marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. He doesn't want these young women running around because they'll become gossips. And then people outside the church will see them as gossips and will bring ill repute to the church and to the gospel. He says in 6.1, he says of bondservants that they are to, quote, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Live quiet. I also see almost identical language. Is what we see here in verse 2. We see of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 where he says this, We urge you, same word, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul's concern that you and I live quiet lives so that we don't bring unnecessary trials upon the church and upon our fellow Christians and bring the gospel into unnecessarily bad light. If they're going to be offended, let them be offended by Christ, by the gospel, by your holy living. We're to live quietly and we are to be praying. We're to be praying for governing authorities. Listen, even the most pagan of governing authorities you are to be praying for. Why? Because Christians who pray for their governing authorities will tend to not despise them. Will tend not to disturb the peace. So early church father John Chrysostom said, he said, no one can feel hatred towards those for whom he prays. That's what Jesus also said. He said, you have heard that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The state is to keep the peace. The state is to maintain order. It is to safeguard its citizens. It is to enforce justice. It is to promote that which is good. It is to outlaw that which is evil. It is to maintain such order that the church can freely worship within its lands without any meddling. That's their duty. And our duty is to pray. To pray for those things, even as we pray for the people who occupy those positions. We pray. I wonder what it would look like and what would be the effect if every time that you and I have complained over the last number of years, that instead of complaining to one another, we had gone to our knees in prayer before our Father for our governing authority. I wonder. I know I haven't prayed enough for those in high positions. Years ago, my view of being a husband and a father radically changed. I remember being brought to the conviction one day that the stumblings of my wife and my kids and their quote-unquote failures and their sins 
were not just their own. Now they are their own. We each have to own our own sins. I am guilty for my sins before the throne of God. And yet the conviction I was brought to was that their stumblings, their failings, their sins, that I, my job and my responsibility is to be bathing them in prayer. That's part of my responsibility. And so their failings and their falterings and their sins aren't just theirs. It's, I surely have not prayed for them enough. Now soften your heart as a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as a father, as a friend, as a neighbor. Soften your heart as a citizen. How different might it look if the church in America was a praying church? How much more free would be the church's ministry in this world as we seek to carry out the desires of God? Because you see, that is Paul's concern here. He's concerned that the gospel would go forward. He's concerned that the lost would be saved. And so he doesn't want the church falling into ill repute so that it has freedom to offer the gospel everywhere and anywhere without constraint. And that leads to our second point. Why is that our desire? Because it's God's desire for all people to be saved. God's desire is not provincial. His desire is inclusive. He desires for all people to be saved. We pray for all because God desires for all. We pray for our governing authorities so we're free to minister to all. Verse 4, He desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now you notice that salvation is not separate from truth. He desires that they would come to know the truth. You people often say, this, oh, I've had enough of this doctrine, had enough of this theology. Christianity, it's all about a relationship. Well, yes, it's about a relationship. But that relationship has to be defined. There has to be doctrine and theology. You have to know who it is you are to believe in and what you are to believe. That's doctrine. That's theology. What did the Ethiopian eunuch say on that? That road with Philip when he was there in the chariot, he said, how am I to understand unless someone explains it to me? That's doctrine. That's theology. Truth matters. You and I, we don't come to God by an experience. We don't come to Him by feeling the breeze touch our skin and send goosebumps up and down our spine. We come by embracing truth. That's what Paul says. Truth. We are truth people as Christians. This is the truthiest truth there is right here in the Scriptures. Salvation is coming to truth. God desires that all would be saved. What does it mean to be saved? To come to a knowledge of the truth. Every single one of you in this room, God desires that you would know the truth. Every single one of you. 
He desires that you know this truth. And you can't be a saved apart from knowing this truth. If you're sitting here this morning, you've rejected God, what you need to know is He desires that you would come to salvation. And you do that by knowing this truth. There's one God, Paul underscores in verse 5, one God. This is the great Shema from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's bringing it home, reinforcing it once again. God is one. Why does He want you to know that God is one? So that you know whether you're a man, woman, whether you're male or female, whether you're a child, a boy or a girl, that all of us, all of us, have one God. There's one God that is over all. And you're all accountable. We are all accountable to this one God. There is one God, he says, one God who is over you. And even as there is only one God that is over you, so Paul makes it crystal clear, there is only one mediator between God and man. There's only one. And you have need of this mediator. Why? Because every single one of us born into this world, every single one of you sitting in this room this morning or watching on the live stream, every single one of us was born into this world, as Paul will say in a different text, at enmity with God and God at enmity with us. Hatred. You're in the midst of this war. You are in need of a mediator. A mediator between you and God. But this morning, if there was a mediator that was sent to negotiate between Russia and Ukraine, what would that mediator's job be? It would be to reconcile them, to bring them together, to, to establish peace, bring that conflict to an end. Paul says there is one mediator, one between man and God, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. Why not another? Why not Muhammad? Why not Joseph Smith? Why not even Moses or Peter? Why not Mary? Only one, Paul says. The man, Christ Jesus. Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who lived during the 12th century, he's often called one of the doctors of the church. He wrote a famous treatise, Curdeus Homo, which is, why did God become man? And he's wrestling with this question, why is it that it had to be the man, Christ Jesus? Why is that the only mediator that you and I can seek? And Anselm rightly argued this. He said, salvation, quote, could not have been done 
unless man paid what was owing to God for sin. Man had to pay the cost because it's man's sin. We sinned against God, so we must pay the cost. The man, Christ Jesus. But then he says this, but the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. You see the issue? It's man's sin. Man must pay it. But the sin is infinite. Why? Because it has been committed against an infinite God. It is an infinite offense. You could pile up the lives of every single man, woman, and child. And it wouldn't be enough to atone for that sin. Because it's infinite in measure. And yet man has to pay it. So what's the solution? God becomes flesh. God descends from His heavenly home in the person of the Son. And He adorns Himself with humanity so that when He dies upon that cross, the payment is made by man. But it is a payment of infinite worth because it is made by God. He's the God-man. This is why you cannot have any other mediator. You can find salvation nowhere else. If you are looking anywhere else, you're barking up the wrong tree. It's not possible. Can you be saved? Can I be saved? Oh my goodness. God became man so that you can be saved. How much does He desire you to be saved? He sent His Son to become man and suffer and die so that you could be saved. God is inclusive and the Gospel is inclusive. Our third point, Christ gave Himself for all. Even as God is not parochial, so the Gospel is not parochial. He gave Himself for all, Paul says in verse 6. Now this can cause some confusion. It doesn't mean that He gave Himself for all. It doesn't mean that Christ died for each and every single person, if that was the case, then each and every single person would be saved. His precious blood is never wasted. There is never a drop of Christ's blood that was shed that somehow is not efficacious, that does not accomplish its purposes. No, all those that He died for, that He shed His blood for, it's not just the possibility of their salvation, He secured their salvation. All those He died for will be saved. But it does say He gave Himself as a ransom for all. And yet, Jason, you're saying that not all are saved. Is it all or is it not all? 
Earlier in this passage, we saw that Paul said that we are to offer prayers for all people. He doesn't mean that you and I are to be on our knees offering prayers for every single person in the world by name, each and every single person, but rather that we are to be offering prayers for all kinds of people, all sorts of people. It would be impossible to do the other. Here he means, even as our evangelistic prayers were to be for all types of people, so Christ died for every type of person. It's inclusive. Our God is inclusive. The Gospel is inclusive. There is neither male nor female. There is neither barbarian or Scythian or slave or free. He didn't die just for the rich or for the poor. He didn't just die for the intelligent. He also died for the remedial. He didn't just die for grown men and women. He also died for children. He died for all. This is why Paul underscores at the end of this passage that he is the apostle to the Gentiles. That is, this isn't just your parochial faith. This isn't just for you Jews that understand the law and the genealogies and all of these speculations that the false teachers are about. No, I am apostle to the Gentiles. This is an inclusive gospel. He is freely offered to all. All types of people. None are excluded. All. He is, as Paul says here, God our Savior. Christ is our Savior. Any way of thinking about this would be to think about like Michigan State University. It's our university. It's our university. There are all kinds of schools that we have here in town. We have all kinds of various elementary schools, all kinds of various middle schools, all kinds of various high schools. We even have different colleges here in town. But there's only one university. And so we rightfully say this is our university. MSU is our university. Now does that mean that I think when I say it's our university that I'm a student in that university? No. It's my university, but I haven't benefited from the instruction of it or the education there. Jesus is our Savior. He is the Savior of the world. God so loved the world. He is the only Savior, our Savior. He is freely offered to all, all types of people. None are excluded, but not all are enrolled in this school. Not all have learned Christ. He's still God, our Savior. You have to enroll to receive the benefits. That leads to three quick applications besides the ones we've done throughout the sermon. If you aren't enrolled in the school, don't you dare leave this room without doing so. I've been there before I came to know Christ, had this knowledge of this truth. I remember very distinctly thinking, 
I'm kind of Switzerland in this world. I'm neutral. I don't know. Is there a God? I don't know. I'll find out when I die. There's no Switzerlands in this world. You're either a friend of God or you're an enemy of God. There's no in-betweens. And as Paul says here, the only way for you to be a friend of God is to be reconciled to this God by this one mediator. Christ is freely offered to you this morning. He's freely offered to you. All you have to do is believe upon Him. Trust in Him for your salvation. And you have peace with God. Don't you dare. Don't you dare leave this room if you don't have peace with God yet. Second, dear Christian, do you live and do you believe and do you pray as if God truly gave Himself, Christ gave Himself as a ransom for all? And I mean all. Are you and I concerned for all types of people, or have we fallen into a provincial mindset? Whether that is of race, or culture, or affinity groups, or probably what we are most prone to here in Western culture, socioeconomic class. Do you pray and labor and speak and live as if He died for all? I'll meddle here a little bit. You pray and believe and labor like He died for all? Do you live in such a way that you believe and pray that He would save the adulterer? That He would save person steeped in homosexuality, that he would save the child abuser, the child molester? Do you believe that he died for all? That he died for the racist, the slaveholder in this world, the protester, the liberal democrat, the libertarian. Do you believe that? Do you live like that? Do you pray like that? You do if you have the desires of God, He desires all people to be saved. That means that we are to be lastly praying and preaching to all people. 
Are you praying like this and preaching like this? Not just that you want your preacher to preach like this. Do you preach like this? Charles Spurgeon made this point to his congregation. I quote, the soul winner must be a master of the art of prayer. Are you a praying people like this? You're praying for all people. Spurgeon said, you cannot bring souls to God if you go not to God yourself. That is, you must be a praying person who goes to God regularly praying so that you are filled with the zeal of Christ. So that you are filled with the love of Christ. So that you are filled with the compassion of Christ. Are you such a prayer? Spurgeon goes on to say, not just praying, but also preaching. He said this to his congregation, My dear hearers, Especially you members of the church, I am always so anxious lest any of you should begin to lie upon your oars and take things easy in the matters of God's kingdom. There are some of you, I bless you, and I bless God at the remembrance of you, who are in season and out of season and earnest for winning souls. And you are the truly wise. But I fear there are others whose hands are slack who are satisfied to let me preach, but do not themselves preach, who take these seats and occupy these pews and hope the cause goes well, but that is all that they do. God's people desire God's desires after Him. Do you desire that all people be saved? Do you pray and preach yourselves in light of that? We've been given such a great salvation. You are so undeserving. I am so undeserving. Now He gives us that great privilege of preaching and praying that this salvation might reach others. May we be such a people. Let's pray. Our God, we are thankful You are a God of such a great salvation. We're thankful that you take sinners and make them children. Forgive us for often being parochial in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our prayers, in our evangelism. May we be a people who preach and pray in light of the great grace that we have received. Where we do not have a desire to see all saved, would you work it in us for your glory and praise.
And oh God, continue to work salvation in our midst. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.